All right, confession time. I have to admit, as we are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, I feel a bit overwhelmed this morning. We are in probably one of the most difficult, theologically dense, theologically pregnant, and hardest portions of Paul's letter to grasp and understand. So I don't know if it's just I'm not all that smart, or I'd like to pretend I'm humble, but I really am not sure I believe that. Uh, This is one of those where I'm gripped by my conscience that I have to preach the whole counsel of God, although everything in me wants to go, can we turn instead to John 3.16, for God so loved the world? Either that or have Mark Landrum come up and preach this sermon for me, but he's already declined my offer in, in terms of that. But we are looking this. Let me remind you, especially if you're visiting today, not kind of caught up with what we're doing. We are going through, talk about ambitious, we're going through Paul's letter to the Romans, and because I didn't want to do it the way the great preacher, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, did it, take eight years to do it, we're doing it kind of in four different mini-series. And let me remind you what Romans is all about. Paul, at heart, is a missionary. He's an evangelist. He's going about the Mediterranean world, the ancient world, wanting to, that's why we saw it in the video, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's Paul's heart. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Remember that as we go through the text that we're going to look at this morning. To the Jew first. That is still God's plan. And then to the Gentile. So Rome is the capital city of the empire, very cosmopolitan, very culturally, racially diverse. And Paul is wanting to change his base of operations. He's been living in ministry in Antioch, and he's wanting to go westward. The end of the book of Romans will say as far west as Spain. And he wants to change his base of operations. He wants to make it out of the center of the empire, Rome. And so what he's doing is he's writing a letter basically saying, here's what I'm all about. Here's my gospel. Here's what I believe. And so he is explaining what the gospel is all about. And he goes about doing this in this section of the letter, which is chapters 9 to 11, by retelling the story of Israel. So we have to remember the big picture context when we look at this little section is Paul is basically saying, here's biblical history. Like a child in a car seat looking backwards, Paul is saying you can only know where you are by seeing where you have come from. And so here in this passage, Romans chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 4, he's basically standing back and asking, where have we got in the story so far? And the passage answers that question. So friends, let's read the text together. If you have Bibles, I'd invite you to turn. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 4. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Years ago, I read an account, a story of a woman who had attended a Bible conference. It was a conference called a Sonship Week, which was basically a discipleship conference that was hosted by what was then called World Harvest Mission. Today we know it as Surge. And this woman shared the following story. She writes, she says, when I was very young, my older sister was hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. I loved my daddy and I wanted to please him. And I was little and I simply wanted to show my love for my dad. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high and I was too small. But I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was. And I rather joyfully pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his white shirt. She goes on to share that she hadn't realized the impact that this had made on her. Her view of God, her relationships with others. And so here she was at this conference, and she's hearing about the love of Jesus. She's hearing how through the gospel, through faith in Christ and his work for her on the cross, he loved her. He delighted in her. He cherished her. He treasured her. She was hearing about this concept of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that she could have, not by performing for it, but she could have this, which basically means, let me define the big 64,000 theological terms, a status before God as acceptable as right that is conferred upon us as a gift. And she's hearing about all of this. She's meeting with somebody who's basically mentoring her, counseling her, discipling her at the conference, and she's telling him about this memory of the shirt and her father and saying that if God, her heavenly father, saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and just give me a hug. To which the counselor looked at her very tenderly and said, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt. He would take it, he would put it on, and he would proudly wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. Tears started coming down from her eyes. Amazing, overwhelming love. And all because of this thing in the text called righteousness. The standard of God, the justice of God. And it says in verse 4 of the text we're looking at this morning, for Christ is the end, the goal, the telos, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the woman at this conference concluded by saying, I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life, and maybe even if we're not Christians, 
our non-Christian life, has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure, to earn everybody else's approval by maybe getting the right shirts hung up just perfectly. See, we all want to fundamentally know we are okay. We want approval. We want validation. We want vindication. The Bible calls that righteousness. And this text tells us that there's both a wrong way and a correct way to obtain that. To know that you are acceptable. Wouldn't you like to leave here this morning, take a deep breath, know the pressure's off, and know that you're okay? That no matter what happens, no matter how often you mess up, no matter how bad you think you look before others, no matter what you think others think of you, you're okay. This text tells us how we can find that. What does this text teach us about how we can be acceptable to God? Two things. First, it tells us, be careful about where you stumble. And secondly, it tells us, submit to the right righteousness. Look with me. Be careful about where you stumble. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Remember, he's saying, we've come to the story so far. Where have we landed? He says that Gentiles, now recognize what he's talking about here, biblical history. You have Jewish people, and Gentiles are basically everyone else. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've somehow attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's key. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. So as a result, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's look at this text. Here's Paul sharing the story of Israel, basically from Abraham. He's going. Remember I said this is biblical history. From Abraham and God's promises to him down through the exile, and now the return from exile and the renewal of God's covenant relationship with his people, all culminating in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And Paul's asking, where are we? Where have we got in the story? And he comes to what would be seen as a completely strange, completely surprising twist in the story. A twist maybe to them, certainly not to God. When he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So one of the things Paul is saying is, we are all, it's universal that we're seeking this righteousness. It's universal that we're all seeking, we may not even be aware of it, a law that leads to us being okay, acceptable, approvable. And he goes on, he says, Gentiles, they're, what are they doing? They're going about their merry way, not really concerned with the status of righteousness, at least outwardly. They've somehow obtained it while the Jewish people, God's chosen people, still God's chosen people, very concerned with their relationship with God, somehow missed it. What they were seeking, they did not find in pursuing the law of God, which is a marker of a right relationship with God, which Paul says is good, by the way, 
they missed the law of God. They didn't succeed in reaching the law of God, the righteousness of God. Tim Keller calls this a topsy-turvy situation. He writes, the ones who knew the most about God did not come to know God, while the ones who knew the least about God came to know God the best. He draws a contrast. He says, basically, if you try to understand it, he says, picture it this way. It's like the irreligious, those who don't have any concern for morals, the right thing. They're just going about their way. We may say they're, eat, drink, and be merry. They're going about, and they basically come to see their need. We're going to see in a minute their need for grace and mercy. They recognize their sin, and they turn to Jesus as their hope. While Israel, by and large, for the most part, for this time in history, he calls the religious, often miss the gospel because too often they are not honest with themselves about their need, about their sin, and they're smug and condescending towards others, offended by grace. See, let me try to make this practical. Sometimes we can't see where we miss the gospel without help. We may believe in the gospel, but functionally, do we always believe in the gospel? See, I think I've told you this story before, but it fits in here, so I'm going to tell you again. And I'm hoping some of you at least have forgotten, and maybe some of you haven't heard it. And I'm not name-dropping, but Tim Keller was my teacher and faculty advisor while I was in seminary. So you all think I'm an extroverted person with a lot of energy now. Picture me at age 27, okay? Where you now have extroverted, energetic, and extremely arrogant. And studying to be in the ministry, learning about this thing called the Reformed faith, Reformed theology, Reformed tradition, call it whatever you want. Now let me add something to the picture and to the story. I was newly married. I mean very newly married, just months into this thing called marriage. And my wife comes from a background, now I think she happens to be more holy, more godly and more spiritual than I am, but she didn't come from a Reformed background. So guess what I was? I was a heretic-seeking missile. I had my theological howitzer out. And I loved Evie, right? And she was the chief heretic in my household, so I thought. And so one day, I'm sitting in Tim Keller's van in the parking lot next door to Westminster Theological Seminary where I went, and I'm going on and on about, Tim, Evie's got to believe this. I can't believe she's not believing this Reformed theology. This is so great. She's got to believe. And I'm going on and on in my exuberant, arrogant youth, and he looks at me and he says, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? Now, you can ask Evie. She says, I was a different sort of husband after that. But here's the point. We all miss the gospel. In biblical history, Paul is showing how the Jewish people historically, certainly not every one of them, Paul himself was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. All the writers of the New Testament, for the most part, were Jewish. But in 
history, for the most part, they missed the gospel. And guess what? All of us Gentiles too, and even all of us who have been believers for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we miss the gospel. Paul picks up in the text and he says, why? Why do we miss the gospel? And he says here, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were on works. It's like hardwired into us. If I perform, I will be accepted. If I achieve, I will be accepted. Come on now, be honest with me. How many of you have had the thought before? If I just have my daily devotion in the morning, I read my Bible and pray, God will bless me with a good day. That's pursuing the law of righteousness by works. I had what they called doctrinal righteousness, reformed theological righteousness. And I tried to overwhelm Evie with it. And then Paul, remember I said he's looking back at the story. Where have we got this far? He says they didn't pursue it by faith, but instead, as if it were based on works, he says, and he's quoting Isaiah 28 here, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Friends, that stumbling stone is Jesus. Isaiah had prophesied, and now Paul is saying here has been God's plan all along, that God would lay in Zion a stone, a rock, but that this stone would be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And so I ask all of you, we get offended by grace. Grace offends us. Are you offended by grace? See, grace tells us we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, that we don't have what it takes, that we are weak, that we are not good enough, we are not adequate or sufficient on our own. It offends our rugged individualism, our go get them spirit, our independence and autonomy. Grace says that we're needy and dependent. That doesn't sound like the American way, does it? Grace offends. And Scripture warns us about this. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount gives this very sober, sober warning when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, be careful about where you stumble. Do you stumble over grace? Lord, did we, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do mighty works? Lord, Lord, wasn't I a pastor? An elder, a deacon, a ministry leader. Don't I read my Bible every day? Don't I raise my children right? Don't I vote for the right person? Don't I give for the right causes? In the Gospel of John, the disciples asked Jesus, what can we do to perform the work of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Be careful over the stumbling stone. Do you stumble over the stumbling stone? Second, look now at chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Submit to the right righteousness. And Paul begins, and like he did at the beginning of chapter 9, this shows Paul's missionary heart. This shows that the gospel is the power of God first to the Jew, because listen to Paul's heart and his prayer. 
brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Does that sound like a stoic theologian to you? Listen to that evangelistic, missional passion. Do we share that passion in praying for our non-Christian family members, our non-Christian friends, those in our community who are without hope and lost? Paul's crying out, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them. I'm a fellow Jewish person, and I'm praying for my kinsmen that they may be saved. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but a misplaced zeal not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, this gift righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Remember I said we're looking back and we have to see this as biblical history. We need to recognize God's plan was always for Israel to be his people. But what does it mean to be the chosen people of God? Biblically. Not politically or anything like, like that. Biblically, what does it mean? And it goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. His relationship with Abraham. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God said, all nations, that's all the Gentiles, that's Jews and Gentiles alike. All nations, the world, would be blessed or saved through Israel. In other words, Israel's vocation, Israel's mission, the point of calling Israel biblically was that they would be the bearer of the salvation, of salvation for the world. Of course, only one problem. They're in the same boat with us called the boat of sin. They have the same issue we do. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike. Human being. If you're a human being, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can you be the bearer of salvation to the world if you've got this sin problem? The sin problem has to be dealt with. And that is, as one commentator put it, Israel could only if, like Jesus himself, be cast away so that the world might be redeemed. Here's where the history of Israel is going. Verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law. That means Christ is the goal of all of this. See, only if there is a faithful Israel and a faithful Israelite who is Jesus, who stood in the place of Jew and Gentile alike, substituted himself so that the curse for the law fell on him. Everything that the law leading to righteousness said had to happen, all of the justice of God, all of the wrath of God fell on Jesus. And Jesus also fulfilled the law so that all of the righteousness of God, all of it, could be conferred on those who believe in Jesus. As a gift, righteousness is a status. See, this doesn't abrogate the law. As verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law. He's the goal of the law. He's where everything was moving for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friends, think about this. Righteousness means being acceptable. 
being approvable, being okay, is available and accessible for everyone who believes. Jew and Gentile alike, meaning everyone. But there we're confronted by grace again because we can't perform for it. We can't work for it. We can't attain it by our own efforts. It has to be simply received as a gift. And the promise is amazing. No one will be put to shame who believes. This seems so counterintuitive to our brains. Everything in my mind goes, if I preach a good sermon, I'm a little more okay. If I preach a dog, I deserve rejection. Whereas the gospel says, Jesus was righteous, Jesus was perfect, Jesus was acceptable, and God gives us that as a gift. Does it feel counterintuitive to your heart? Because it sure feels counterintuitive to my heart. Let's at least have some spiritual, intellectual humility and admit we all struggle with this. This is a universal struggle. We all want to establish our own acceptability, our own being adequate, our own being good enough. I mean, think about this. If you're a student, you might be feeling the pressure of getting good grades, getting into the right college. If you're a young parent, a young mom or dad, you might be feeling the weight or insecurity of raising children in a dangerous world. Will they turn out right? Will they be okay? If you're in the business world, you might be feeling all the pressure to achieve, to climb the ladder so you can retire one day with a sufficient income, hopefully not too many regrets. If you're retired, you knew I would get to you, didn't you? If you were retired, you might be looking back at your life and wondering, where did it all go? Did your life count? Or you might be facing the future with anxiety and fear. Friends, all of this is the struggle for righteousness, for knowing that we're secure, knowing that we're okay. One of my favorite theologians is a man by the name of Richard Lovelace, and he said, we all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. We start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements. And since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. J.B. Phillips wrote a paraphrase of a translation of the New Testament. He translated Romans 10.4 this way. He said, Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness. Friends, what if in our lives Christ really was the end of the struggle? What if repentance for us really looked like quitting striving? Quitting struggling fun functionally for perfection, for achievement, for reputation, what will they think of me for glory, for acceptance, for worth, for validation? The good news is Jesus is all of that for us. He has become for us wisdom from God. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is enough. If you are in him, maybe you've never believed in him before. You know how simple it is to believe in him? The hardest thing to do, but the simplest thing. 
All you have to do is Father, accept, say, Father, accept me. God, accept me because of the righteousness of Jesus. And you are fully in, completely welcomed, 100% belonging. Christ's righteousness. You can be a part of God's family. And friends, we don't have to struggle so much. At least we don't have to struggle for acceptance. I think our biggest prayer each day should be or ought to be, Lord God, help me remember my acceptance in Christ. Let Christ be the end of the struggle.